Welcome to this podcast recording from the 2022 POD, Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery Conference on Practical Advice for Successful Partnering Between Innovator Drug Delivery Companies and Big Pharma. The POD conference is produced by the Conference Forum. For more information, please visit podconference.com. Enjoy the podcast recording from POD 2022. Vincent said, hey, how, how probing should we get here, right? How, how deep should we dive? And I'm, we're going to tackle these subjects head on. I think what Yuri said is totally right. Partnering is fundamental to what we do in this industry. I don't know if I could say it's like no other, but it's certainly unique in that you will partner on one moment and compete on another moment with 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 other companies, right? It happens on the device side, it happens on the, the pharma and biotech side, and it's fascinating. So being able to wear both hats, I think, is critical, but it's hard. And so we're going to dive into a few different subjects. I welcome questions, right? So if you have a question, wave at us. We can't see you too well because of the light. So if I don't acknowledge you, just be patient. But we want to talk about a couple of subjects, different pathways to partnering based on where the technology is in its life cycle. We want to talk about what, and this gets to the practical advice, what pharma wants to see from the innovator and the technology. Again, maybe different at different pathways. And then this one I think is critical to new folks in the space who are looking to partner. What are the roles of the different functional areas and when should you be talking to them and at what stage. So let's jump in. We're going to start with our three pharma representatives, right? If Michael, maybe you could start. How, let's start at the beginning, right? How do these opportunities get on farmer's radar screen? I mean, obviously a conference like this, but what else? When you're, when you're at BMS, how are these funneling in? Yep, that's a good question. Um, essentially, when I'm coming out to meetings, I'm more of a transactions person. So I, I the team that needs the technology comes to me with a company they want to work with. But I also wear a search and evaluation hat when it comes to these different partnering meetings. And I try to come equipped with knowledge of where are the touch points at BMS, what are the issues we're having, what are some of the trouble spots. Um, so then I'll come to meetings, seek out folks to speak to here that could help us overcome some of those particular issues. The other way the opportunities come in are uh, basically blind, you know, through the computer. People know who I am. They email me cold. I'll review uh, what they sent. Some folks send presentations. They specifically um, hit key areas that might be of concern for BMS, but where we need help. And I'll work with my drug delivery, drug development colleagues to see if there's a fit or any need for the opportunity. Thanks, Michael. Sarah, comment? Yes, yeah, it's, it's the same at Sanofi. So coming into a conference like this, we already have some of the things that we want to do in mind and come looking for partners, blind, obviously. But I also think that um, really anyone that you meet from Sanofi is an ambassador for you. So, you know, staying connected with folks in the company is a good way uh, to just maintain connections um, and find the right people that you need to talk to. Vincent? Yeah, so um, it's kind of interesting. The way you know I usually uh, try to work is to figure out what the therapeutic areas want. Uh, like I mentioned yesterday, there's four therapeutic areas in Takeda, and I try to go to their um, you know group meetings, right? And this way you can understand what the needs are. 
Um, it's always good to have a new technology, but it has to fit. I have to draw a line between the technology and a use case. And if I can't do that, it's really hard to move forward with. Uh, so that helps. Uh, so, but it's interesting because uh, research groups, they change their directives all the time, right? And so there's a good memory involved too, that you know, if something's not relevant now, it might be relevant in the, in the future. And so you have to remember the things that come by that, that make a sense to connect with. So, Deborah, I'm going to come to you in just a second, but one follow-up on this. We talked a little bit about the book of technologies, and some pharma have a book of technologies that are being populated, right? Can we talk, you know, practically speaking, how is that used? How I can understand how it gets populated, right? Who pulls out the book? Where does the book live? Anyone want to comment on that? I'll start off in that, because John, I think we spoke about that, and, and Vincent, you had comments too. Um, so, so we have a database at BMS, and I've been doing this for 16 years with the company. So every time an opportunity comes in, any fashion comes in, it gets logged into the system. And obviously, if it's something truly pertinent, um, it gets highlighted in the system. The drug development team also has their landscape analysis of different companies they've done for particular areas over time. And for the most part, our, our, our um, databases, if you will, overlap. I mean, I ha might have things that I never forwarded to them because I knew it was off target. We're no longer working with antivirals for some particular reason or in this particular area. Um, and had Vincent had said, like, something might not be pertinent today, but all of a sudden, you there's now all of a sudden a need for it. We're back in neuroscience and we need B2B delivery. It's like, all right, who are those companies? Are they still around? How have they advanced? So okay. that's how we do it, John. Any other comments or? I would say there's different databases for different things. So yeah. for example, procurement will have a very different database of standardized technologies versus uh, what we capture is very similar to probably to what Mike said, uh, you know, reach outs and folks we've talked to from a more um, project or deal perspective. All right. So Deborah, you like we, innovative company, you more on the formulation side, we more on the device side. How are you gaining access to the right people? I, I would say we've had experience with all of these where sometimes there's a scientist that sees us present at a conference and then contacts us later and then connects us with the right people within the company. If we're going out and actively looking at a company we want to work with, we find you know these three people <laughs> and try and make connections there. Um, Sometimes we just get cold calls from the, from the website. You know, someone is scouting. They're looking for a particular need to see if we can solve it and wear a technology that might do it. Um, in any of those cases, you know, the most important thing from our perspective is to find out who's, who's interested in the technology and why and find that champion in the company that can help connect us with the, with the right people. But it, it comes from all, all of these different places. Okay. From our side, just from the device perspective, we're really generally starting with a technology team or a technology scout or a device development engineer who is either looking for a particular solution or doing a landscaping exercise, right? But inevitably it comes down to the money, right? It's either, you know, Cuba Gooding and Jerry Maguire saying, show me the money or, uh, or, or follow the money, right? If for, for all the president's men, it's a little older movie, but where are you finding money, Deborah? Who's got the money and how do you get it? That is a great question. <laughs> it depends. Um, I see arms shortening in the audience. The alligator <laughs> arms are coming up. So, you know, we, we find that there are generally two, two buckets, right? The, the first one that we tend to work in is the, the feasibility groups. And this is where you've got 
um, folks in pharma that have a small amount of money to see how a technology works. And sometimes we have to even scale back the feasibility study that we want to do in order to figure out what is it you really need to see? You know, what is it that we're claiming that you really don't believe <laughs> that will convince you that this is something that we can then take to the next level? And then where the larger dollars are and where it gets a lot easier is when you get involved with the product development teams that have that specific asset that you can apply the technology to. Okay, so at Decatur, Vincent, early stage technology, it's not, you know, it's not an off-the-shelf thing. Where's the money coming from? Yeah, so uh, there's basically two buckets, right? Usually you try to draw from the therapeutic area that needs the technology. Of course, if they need it, they should be paying for it, right? But sometimes there is no technology that can address what they need. And as a result, you know, they're reluctant to just try something, you know, just on speculation. And so I actually have my own small budget for these small feasibility studies. And usually these feasibility studies um, are animal studies, to repeat an animal study, the key animal study. And uh, I actually would prefer if it's not done in the originator lab, just to make sure it's reproducible at a CRO or even in-house. Uh, so even materials transfer agreements can work. You know, so we give them some API, they load it, and we put into our you know, mice and see what happens. So unfair question, what's the size and scope? Give us a range. Is this, can this get into the hundreds of thousands? Is it in the tens of thousands? Or no, no, usually it's less than 100,000. Okay. You know, think of an animal study with 30 mice. Right. Okay. From the device perspective, a quick comment. Similar scope, right? And it's, Deborah, as you said, what are the key, if we talk about proof of concept feasibility, what do you have to answer first before it goes on? But what we often hear is, well, we want to see it validated by someone else. We want to see it in clinical. Is it in human? How do we deal with that? Sarah, you want to jump in on that one? How do you deal with that, whether it's the formulation side or the device side? It's got to start somewhere. Uh, you're right. So sometimes it helps if there's already data in hand, right, from the company. But again, we like to also do our MTAs and evaluations and, and try and reproduce. But working together with a company to figure out what is the fast to fail. So what is the... the uh, least cost scenario to kind of show that proof of concept right. to move forward. Right. Michael, any comments on that? Wanted to see that data before it No, but you, you said the innovative technology. Obviously, if something's already commercially validated as a technology, you know, everybody's going to buy in. It's the innovative, the new stuff. And we don't shy away from that. We're more than interested, but want to go through a paper assessment, paper feasibility. Does it make sense? Start out taking little bites, little studies at a time to build up upon it, John. Okay. I'll open real quick. Any questions? Can't really see, but if not, all right. We're going to sort of transition a little bit to what do you need to see, you know, whether it is early stage or later stage and how that changes. So it's an innovative technology, but let's start with early stage, right? What do you need to see in the company and what do you need to see in the technology to throw some money at it and answer some questions? Do you want to start, Vincent? Yeah, sure. So uh, this, is, uh, this is an interesting cultural thing. You know that uh, a lot of pharma companies, uh, they're driven by drug discovery and not delivery, right? So delivery takes a you know, back seat. And sometimes you can see something coming down. You say, this API will never work unless it has the right delivery system. And so sometimes you have to take a risk and preemptively start funding you know, some experimental delivery system that's not available for this uh, so that uh, you can have something when the API matures, you have something to load it in. Otherwise, you know, sometimes drug discovery people, they don't understand that drug delivery is a separate discipline. 
right? It's its own field of research. There, there needs to be basic R&D done as well if, if such a system doesn't exist, and they, they don't understand that doesn't fit into a tidy timeline. How do we address that? Well, uh, you have to understand the biology of what disease they're trying to, you know, trying to cure, right? And so, for example, if you want to have, uh, I'll just pull it out of my head, right? So, for example, if you want something that's, that's like an enzyme therapy, right, that's for the gut and has to be long-lasting, you know, it can't just be a pill that you swallow and that's it, right? You need something that's gastroattentive. And a lot of times people don't think of that, right? And so you would... Um, based on what the need will be, you let the people know that you're going to need this in the future, you know, and you're not looking at it now. And so I'd like to warn you that, you know, you're going to need this in the future. I'll start looking for uh, this technology now for you, right? right? And if something comes up, we can talk. And if it's too early, you know, we can do some feasibility studies on it and develop it further. Yeah, it's perfect. So this, so Deborah, now coming at you, you know, what, what I feel, we talk about practical advice, if I'm talking to an entrepreneur that's been, that's at pod for the first time, right, the way we were in 2014, I would say, you have to understand what is driving this. Is it differentiation or enabling, which we'll come back to with Mike and Sarah, Michael and Sarah in just a second. But Deborah, how do you find out what's driving something from someone you're trying to get and do business with? How do you probe? I, I think it's tricky, and, and just to you know, follow on to what you were just saying. We've seen that kind of chicken and egg scenario where, you know, the problem is really apparent once you've developed that asset a little bit further and you say, okay, now we need to deliver it. But we're an early stage company and not commercially validated. So there's that gap. And, you know, we need to start collaborating earlier in that cycle in, in order to make sure that the technology is ready when the product needs it. Yeah. And, um, you know, in terms of advice and what I could say is just ask a lot of questions early. You know, we try to really understand with our partners how exactly do you want to use this? And I mean, I'd be curious to get feedback from you guys. You know, obviously, you, it's it's often hard to get details on what does the clinical timeline look like for this. What molecule are you thinking about it for? But those are questions that we try and ask early on, so we can say, okay, this is your clinical timeline. This is our clinical timeline. Where do they come together? And making sure that, assuming success, that we can actually make it happen. Obviously, you've got to go through the motions and do the tests and get the data. Um, but the earlier you can have those conversations and make sure that that does make sense, then you're not doing a, a study to test a technology where the economics and the timing just don't work out to use it where you want it to use it. Awesome. So I want to come back to this enabling versus differentiating, but you cued something. Michael and Sarah, how do we get pharma to be honest with us and tell us whether it's real or it's not real, right? Um, I, I'm being probing, right? But, you know, whatever. It's late on Tuesday. John, we're always honest. At BMS, we tell you the way it is. And uh, No, but that's a good question. The idea is, I've been doing this, like I said, 16 years. There was a time where we'd use tool compounds. Let's test it with tool. I think we're moving away from that and moving to the actual compound, you know, the proprietary compound that we're interested in. And I, the, the companies that we're working with always want to know, you know, you're just trying it out to see, and then you'll have a tool to work with in the future, or do you have a real problem with something you're trying to develop right now? Right. And we try to approach that. And like Deborah said, you know, if, if, it's, if it's truly um, an enabling uh, formulation, something we, we really need as opposed to differentiating, there's going to be a timeline. We might be struggling to get to a clinic with a particular um, 
um, compound, you know, it couldn't be solved chemically in the discovery group, so it needs some sort of formulation efforts. So I, on that part, I think we'll be honest, is like, a, you know, this is a tool we're evaluating, we want to see, we're not going to give you the real compound right now, and some companies don't want to work with that, it's like, no, we, are, we already have the proof of concept, if you're not going to give us the real compound you have challenge on, then we prefer, you know, not to go with at this time. So that's how we approach it. Sarah, what's more fun, to do a deal on an enabling technology where you're allowing a drug to be delivered, but it's going to be a difficult, right? There's a lot of work to do. Or maybe a more of a life cycle differentiation technology that may give you some you know, marketing uh, uh, energy if you're in a crowded therapeutic field or you're a follow-on. What do you prefer? Uh, me personally? Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I like the enabling. Right, because it's transformational. It'll change yeah, the, the whole way you think about a product or a technology. Worth the work. It's yes. worth the work. Definitely. How does it change? What, what would you consider Lindy's technology? So, Lindy, why don't you give 30 seconds on Lindy's technology real quick, just to give a free, uh, an audience. High concentration formulations of biologics. Um, high concentration suspensions, I would say. So they're non-aqueous suspensions. We're at four to 500 mg per mil for sub-Q delivery. All right. Ready? Audience participation. Who considers that enabling versus differentiating? Enabling. Raise your hands. Who thinks that's enabling? Who thinks that's differentiating? Okay, well, we had about 30% participation. <laughs> You're all fired. Um, what changes on the burden of proof to get in a project enabling versus differentiating, Vincent, for you? Okay, I mean, why don't I use a real-life example like Lindy, right? I only met uh, Deborah just a few months ago, and it was the bio meeting, and it wasn't even through, you know, Lindy. It was through, I think, North Carolina, uh, some business program, and they suggested talking to you. And they gave me a whole list of interesting biotechnologies in North Carolina to look at, and I saw Lindy, wow, high concentration? oh, this is great because we have a plasma-derived therapy group, right? So it might sound just like, oh, well, you know, what does that have to do with Lindy? But if you can have an ultra-concentrated IVIG, that's a $3 billion product. It's not just nothing, right? So this is, you know, worth talking to, and that's how we met. Nice. All right, any questions just to give everyone a shot? No, all right. All right, we're looking for a little higher audience participation on this one, and this is where I'd probably put my job at risk a little, so bear with me. Just raise your hand. Anyone who's from a drug company, a drug, uh, you know, a pharmaceutical or biotech company, please raise your hand. Come on, come on, don't be shy. We're not gonna ask you for your business card. If you're in procurement, keep your hand up. Is anyone in procurement? <laughs> awesome. <laughs> that tells you something, by the way, right? So the, the point we're gonna talk about here is the right functional group within pharma at the right time, right? And what happens and who it should be. So again, thinking practical advice, if it starts off with scouts or champions, let's start with you guys, right? You're the biz dev for the most part role, right? Michael, what's your role and when should innovators be talking to you and when do you get involved in the process? And then we'll talk about some of the other functional groups. So when it's going to be more of a licensing deal, so again, I work with the development team, and they know when something is more procurement-driven, where they're going to ask for proposals and such from the outside companies, as opposed to when we have a particular project to address a particular pro uh, problem. And if that problem is solvable, and 
the technology or platform is capable of being licensed, you know, there's, there's IP diligence that's going to go on, that's going to become a licensing deal. So that's going to be, go to the BD group as, as opposed to the procurement group. But we spoke about devices. A lot of the device things, I don't get involved in as much. And I understand that that's where requests for proposals come in or whatever right. that term is, RFPs yep. that folks yep. use. RFPs, yep. So it's a different environment. But the teams that I work with, the discovery and development teams, they know when things need to be brought to BD and when they need to go over the procurement group. So is it fair to say you're supporting those teams, not necessarily driving the teams, but you're supporting them when it gets into agreement discussions and scoping various licensing agreements? I'm supporting them all along. I'm actively going to their meetings like Vincent is, huh? seeing what's coming through the pipeline. But yes, so there's a, a direct relationship. It's not like, oh, who should we bring this to? Okay. Um, Sarah? Your relationship with the technology teams or the teams that are seeing new, new device or new formulation technology, how early in the process are you? I'm pretty early, so I also sit in with a research group, help them develop awesome. the internal as well as external strategy, and then work with them to, to scout and look for technologies. So it starts very early on, and hopefully those early relationships that may start with an evaluation will actually transfer into something more as in licensing once the... Uh, technology gets mature enough. And have you seen, I mean, it's a silly question, but I would imagine there's a lot of value in having been involved early on, right? You see the genesis, you can redirect when it's getting outside of the swim lanes, right? And then when it comes to doing the deal, you have a relationship with the innovator company, which makes a ton of difference, right? So going along those lines, Deborah, have you had procurement get involved in what you would think is too early in the process? We tend to avoid procurement. Okay, <laughs> You're um, going to teach me how. <laughs> um, I mean, it might be a little bit easier with formulation development because be. you're, you, you, there's a lot more collaboration that goes on between us and the scientists to you know, optimize the formulation for that particular molecule. Um, so I think there's far more of a tendency to view us as being really plug and play. It's a platform, but it's not right. as plug and play as a device might be. So we tend to work with research groups and D. So, I mean, I'm, I'm beating up on the person or the people that aren't in the room a little bit, and I'm being uh, obviously provocative. I love procurement because it means you're going to a supply agreement, right? It's great to have that uh, deal and, and go through that fun exercise of, of, of um, being beaten up around cost and things like that because, in the end, it's a supply agreement. But... If it happens too early, um, I find it can be very, very, very disruptive. And so what I have done with some of the people in this room is sort of get on the phone and to, a, to a biz dev person and say, look, procurement's running this. They're trying to run an RFP on a customized new innovation. It's, I can't even answer the questions, what do I do? And in certain cases, I've had biz dev folks say, I'll take care of it. And like two weeks later, the deal was done. So. Any thoughts, any, any advice for someone who's, who's um, you know, working with procurement but too early in the process? What, well, should they call you? Uh, well, I mean, the interesting thing is for the work that I've done, I've never had problems with procurement because it's so early Might stage. Might be a device thing. Yeah, it could be a device thing. Yeah. Um, I mean, in our case, we, if, we, if we work with someone who we think we could have a long-term relationship with these, they'll be formulating a lot of compound for us, then we get a master service agreement in place. It's going to take about two months or so, 
and then you have a statement of work and you append it to that and you just go with it. And that's that's about the limit of what we Yeah, do. so maybe this is more of a device thing. Yeah. So we'll table it and I'll continue to have my own battles on how to deal with it. Let's go back to the asset teams, right? We talked earlier that the money is really on the the, the drug teams. The asset teams have the real money, right? Mm -hmm. And that's when things really can can get going. Um, your colleague, Michael Srini, who's in the audience uh, somewhere, I don't know, we, he, we had a great conversation earlier, and he said, what, what you guys are doing is really getting a far enough look into the pipeline so that when you see needs in the pipeline, you can get the money from the asset teams, but early enough to allow development to occur, right? Which is brilliant. Um, any comments on that? Is that, a, is that something you've been doing forever? Or is that new? What is it? Actually, Srini's done a lot of legwork on that front. So, like, he'll get out there and speak with different groups within the company to see what they're working. He'll go to the specific assets team, therapeutic area, leads on the discovery side, and get insight. Now, there's always teams, working teams that. That, that do this, but that's how he's been running his group over the past few years, which has been good. I try to do that as well. Like we're agnostic to therapeutic area, right. so like Vincent, I'll sit down with the neuroscience team, the the, the discovery working teams, immunology, card cardiovascular, and get a sense of what's going on, and then try to feed it into the the team that might see these things right. and needs in the problem. You know, sometimes the discovery teams don't even realize we have the capabilities to deliver certain um, challenging uh, entities. So I, I think that's the best way it's working. And again, it is part of what Shreen and his team does. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So Sarah and Deborah, here's a question for you guys to look at from opposite ends of it. We've heard, maybe you have, you know, Pharma wants the innovator to understand farmers' processes, to understand who needs to be brought into the conversation and when. That can be hard on an innovator because we're on the outside looking in. Sarah, question for you is, is that your expectation and how can pharma support that? And Deborah, question for you is, what do you do when that's the case? How do you get this information? How do you learn what each farmer's processes are? Maybe Sarah first. Yeah, so that's actually something that we've heard from the partners, that they'd like to understand it better. And so something that we're actively trying to do is help them understand that. We've created actually a, a letter that outlines <laughs> every step of the process that you'll expect if going through a licensing deal with us. Okay. Uh, so hopefully that makes it clear for folks coming into the conversation, how it'll happen, what the timelines are, and the expectations. Deborah, is that something that you've been challenged to do? Yeah, I would say it's, it's always really helpful to have, um, and in our experience, it really depends on the company. You know, some companies are very forthcoming with that information, and sometimes the particular group that we start working with um, is not very forthcoming, and it, you know, it takes a little, it's almost a little, a little bit of like pulling teeth to try and get it, yeah. but as you develop that relationship, you know, we, we just continue to ask the questions and find out who are the people, you know, if this works well, what are those next steps? Who are we talking to next? And, and try and understand that as early in process, as we can in the process, so... It's just a matter of asking a lot of questions. So this brings me, Vincent, maybe to the role of the champion, right? Each of we innovators, we need a champion. We need someone to be to help us shepherd, be shepherded through the process. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about that with Indicator. Who yeah. Is that? Well, I mean, so usually, um, if a therapeutic area needs something, then I have to find the person's project who it belongs to, and he has to be the champion. Because if he doesn't drive it, I can't drive it. Now, it's different if it's an emerging technology that people don't realize they need yet, in which case then I'm the champion. 
Yeah. Right? And because there's no one else to go to, right? And if I have time to give a quick joke, you know, uh, with what I can do, people think I work for Takeda, but I actually work for our clients too. Because if I look bad, it's my career as well, because I'm recommending something that's futuristic. And if I guess wrong, it's going to impact my career. So I work for both sides. I work for Takeda, and I also work for our client as well. It's brilliant. And, and one parting thought for me and advice to the first person, you know, the first pod attendee here uh, is make your champion look good. Tell them what you have. Strategize with them about when to deliver it, to whom, so that... God forbid it happens, but the champion moves to a new role or moves yeah. to a new company. You know, it's been known to happen in this industry. I'm not sure you guys are aware. Your network is bigger than your champion, but at all costs, make your champion look good. We hope you enjoyed this podcast recording from The Pod, Partnership Opportunities in Drug Delivery 2022 Conference. For more information, please visit podconference.com. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 